The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. On that day, as evening drew on, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us cross to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took Jesus with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. A violent squall came up, and waves were breaking over the boat, so that it was already filling up. Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Quiet, be still. The wind ceased, and there was great calm. And then he asked them, Why are you terrified? Do you not yet have faith? They were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this? whom even wind and sea obey. The Gospel of the Lord. In our first reading today, we see an anticipation of that great teaching that Jesus will centuries later utter when he looks at those who are self-righteous and too critical of others, saying, don't try to remove the speck from your brother's eye when you have a plank in your own. And we see it here as Nathan the prophet comes before King David, who has sinned greatly, but is acting as if it never happened. The public is unaware, the world is unaware, and David is resting secure on his throne, content with what he has and what has happened. And so it is that the prophet comes before him and says, I need your help with this. Here's the issue at hand, and Nathan creates this story. This story about a poor man and his little lamb and the wealthy neighbor who won't take from his own flocks but seizes the lamb of the poor man to feed a guest. And David becomes enraged at hearing this, at the injustice of this. And going so far as to say, that man deserves death. Well, let's be blunt. It's a lamb. It's a lamb. David has committed murder. David has committed adultery. This is a lamb. But David's heart is so outraged at this tale of ridiculous injustice that he is ready to spring into action and right that wrong. And he shows us, in a sense, as if holding up a mirror, the truth of our own hearts as well. It is often the case that we are readily and easily offended by things that may be real injustices, but also are often smaller than the injustice we harbor within ourselves. 
It is so easy to be outraged at the wrong of another and so difficult to take an honest look at myself and to name the truth of my own sinfulness and my own wickedness. And so it is then that as David becomes angry and names the fact that this is incredibly wrong, it must be made right and the guilty one must bear the consequences of his action. We see the other mirror as Nathan holds it up and says, just look into this because you're that guy. You are that man. In fact, you are worse than the man in the story. Because we're not talking about a little ewe lamb. We're talking about a woman. And we're talking about a man who was put to death at your order. And so the prophet confronts the king with the reality of his guilt and his action. And to his credit at this moment, David no longer pretends that he's innocent. David no longer tries to cover up or deny the wrong he has done. He names it and he admits it. This is so different from the showy public apologies our culture has grown accustomed to, where one who has committed great wrong comes out before the cameras and the public sort of admits his guilt and then gives all the reasons why it's really not that bad. And David here, to his credit, acknowledges, I have sinned greatly, and I've betrayed the Lord. I am, in fact, the guilty one. Note how important that is, this incident between the prophet and the king where the prophet calls the king to account, and the king now realizes playing the game of preserving my reputation is the wrong game. I must acknowledge the wrong that I have done and recognize that consequences do in fact come in the wake of wrong. And so the prophet says to him, the Lord has in fact forgiven you. But then we see the next instructive example here. The Lord has forgiven you. That doesn't mean that God is going to pretend this didn't happen, however. We sometimes have distorted ideas of forgiveness. That forgiveness means acting as if you didn't do any wrong in the first place. We like that kind of forgiveness. I do a great wrong and I say, please forgive me, which means we act as if it didn't happen. That's not forgiveness, that's fantasy. Forgiveness begins with reality. The reality is David committed a great wrong. And the Lord is willing to not hold that guilt against him, but the Lord will hold him accountable for the wrong that he has done. Forgiveness often comes with insisting on consequences because that is how we make right what we have ruined in the first place. And so the Lord says, there, are, there is damage that you have brought into your household. 
I will forgive you, but the truth of the matter is, by you bringing this violence into your family and into your kingdom, understand that violence isn't going to go away. So I've forgiven you, but you now have to live with the consequences of what you've done. We will see as the weeks roll on that one of David's own sons will rise up in rebellion against him. And what the prophet says to the king will come painfully true. But for now, for now, David recognizes I have done wrong and I must face the full reality of the wrong that I've done. And I will do it by first beginning to restore my relationship with the Lord who has forgiven me and who will remain with me in the difficulties that come. But those difficulties will come because great wrongs do in fact have real consequences. And it is important that we recognize that. This in no small measure is why, for example, when we go to confession, after we receive the word of forgiveness, we're given a penance. Okay? The penance isn't the price of forgiveness. Forgiveness is given. Forgiveness is free. But why do we have a penance? To do something to demonstrate, one, the reality of our own sorrow, and two, to recognize that the wrong that I have done has left a consequence behind in the world, and I'm responsible for repairing it. I'm responsible for restoring it. Oftentimes, the penance is small, much smaller than the wrong we've done. But note the importance of the gesture. I've been forgiven, but I am still accountable for the damage I've caused. And I've got to do something, something to repair it, something to restore it. This is now where the Lord leaves David. You have been forgiven. Oh, but the consequences, you have to live with those. I will be with you, but the consequences of what you've done are, in fact, real. And so it is then that David now fasts and prays and pleads before the Lord, this spirit of repentance. And it comes to beautiful and compelling expression in the responsorial psalm that we had today. Psalm 51, or in some versions of the Bible, Psalm 50, which is the greatest of what is referred to as the penitential psalms, and attribute it to David. In fact, the church has long connected the words of that psalm to this particular incident. David, overwhelmed by the greatness of the wrong he has done and the seriousness of the guilt that he bears, in his prayer before the Lord composes this beautiful hymn, this beautiful psalm, this beautiful prayer, which begins with those simple and compelling words, have mercy on me, O Lord, for I have sinned. It is this psalm that will also run through the upcoming season of Lent, like something of a drumbeat, 
beginning on Ash Wednesday, when it is our responsorial psalm to the first reading. This psalm begins with naming the utter wrong that has happened in all of its gravity, and then recognizing, however, that the Lord is merciful and by his grace can make me new. It's a remarkable prayer of the heart, which isn't merely saying, I'm sorry, but continues by saying, you can make me new. You can make me clean. And if you make me clean, I can serve you faithfully once again. On some levels, it is the original act of contrition and a marvelous, marvelous prayer that all of us really should know and be aware of. Again, it's Psalm 51. And this beautiful cry of the heart, which doesn't simply wallow in guilt, but looks heavenward with a certain confidence, recognizing that even in the greatness of my guilt, I can turn to you, O Lord. And even with the wrong that I have done, you, in fact, can heal me and make me clean and indeed make me new. And we will see this as well as we move forward with the story of David, that he will rise up from his guilt. He will manfully face the consequences of the wrong he has done. And he will seek with new strength to be faithful to the Lord away from whom he has fallen with this crime. And we see here again the difference between David and Saul. Because when the Lord confronted Saul with the wrong that he had done, Saul did not repent. Saul did not apologize. Saul did not say, what must I do to make it right? Note the difference here. It's one thing to know my guilt. It's one thing to know my wrong. That is a necessary thing. But even more important is, once I know that, I have to know where to turn. And I have to know what to do. And David doesn't fall into despair. He doesn't say, I've ruined everything, what can I do? He says, I've ruined everything, but what I do is I turn back again to the Lord, who can heal me and who can restore me, and who desires not simply to punish me, but who wants to make me whole again. And what a remarkable act of faith here that we see in this Remarkable man, on the one hand, so holy and so faithful, and yet, like us, who can fall so easily, so quickly, so suddenly. And yet, who, even when he recognizes he has fallen so fast and so far, is still capable of lifting his eyes and his heart upward toward heaven. And it's out of this, out of this, this storm of guilt and accountability which suddenly falls upon David, that we turn now to another storm in our gospel reading today. And the gospel reading that we have today begins with an odd expression. As Jesus says to his disciples, let's go to the other side, and they get into the boat, note what is said. 
because St. Mark uses words that run in the opposite direction of how we commonly speak. We often speak of the Lord loving us just as we are, don't we? But what do we hear in our gospel reading? The disciples took Jesus with them in the boat just as he was. Interesting expression that is, to take Jesus with us just as he is. We like it the other way. We like it when the Lord takes us and receives us just as we are, because we believe that's such an affirmation that I'm already good, that I'm already right, that everything must be okay. Jesus loves me just the way I am, so I guess I don't got to change. And that is just simply not the truth, and that's not even what it means to say that Jesus loves me as I am, or Jesus meets me where I'm at. Because the simple fact of the matter is, I'm a person who needs saving. If where I was at was so good, I wouldn't need to be saved. If just how I am is so wonderful, I wouldn't need to be saved. And so note, Jesus loves me how I am so that I can become better. Jesus meets me where I am at so he can bring me to where I need to go. He doesn't love me where I am so I can stay here. He doesn't love me how I am so I can just remain this way. Rather, he loves me how I am so I can become better than I am. He meets me where I am so that I can go to where I need to be. He doesn't come to leave me here. He doesn't come to leave me how I am. However, when we reverse it, we also see something mysteriously beautiful and wonderful. Because again, as much as we say we love Jesus, what we really want is for Jesus to be the way we want him to be. We want Jesus to relate to us, to speak to us, to love us in the way that we think is best. Not necessarily in the way that he thinks is best. In other words, we struggle with accepting Jesus just how he is. And that is one of the fundamental tasks of Christian discipleship, is to turn to the Lord in a way that acknowledges who he is and how he acts. Not how we would prefer things to be, but rather how they actually are. Otherwise, I am replacing the Lord with an idol of my own making. Otherwise, I am not following the Lord, I am following my wishful thinking. And so it is that here we see the disciples bring the Lord into the boat without seeking to change him, without seeking to decide for him who he will be, what his place in my life will be, without assigning him his seat in the boat. We like to do that. We have that expression of making a space for the Lord in my life. When maybe I should ask the Lord what space he wants. 
Note how different that becomes. Note how different that is. And so it is that the disciples receive the Lord how he is, and how he is this day is wanting to take a nap in the boat. The disciples would have preferred a more active presence at this moment. As the storm comes up, the Lord is napping. That's how he is. And this troubles them. Even though they've accepted him, brought him into the boat just as he is, all of a sudden they discover there's an element to how Jesus is that seems pretty inconvenient. Because Jesus should be watching me and I should be able to see him watching me. Because Jesus shouldn't just be with me. Darn it, he should be awake when he's with me. And so the boat begins to shake, and the Lord continues to sleep. And note the contrasting messages now that we see. The world in its storminess, the sea in its violence, is saying, I am greater than you. I am mightier than you. I am dangerous to you. And I will overcome you. And the disciples experiencing this look at themselves, they look at the ocean, they feel the wind, and they say, yeah, that's right. We can't survive this. The wind will overcome us. The storm will sink our boat. What are we going to do? We can't do a thing. That's message number two. And then there's message number three. There's Jesus. Remember him? Sleeping on the cushion. And by sleeping, what is he saying? The implication is, I've got this. That this is not a threat to me. And by implication, it's not a threat to those who are with me. But notice he's not awake. He's not saying that. He's not giving them that word of reassurance that they want. Jesus is asleep on the cushion, and what they really want is that Jesus has given them a pep talk. That Jesus is reassuring them, and Jesus is still taking his nap. And it's not until this fear becomes great that they turn to him and say, Lord, don't you care? Don't you care? Isn't this important to you? And in this remarkable moment, Jesus physically wakes up, feels the wind, looks at the sea, and simply says, oh, shut up and be still. And everything falls quiet. So simple, so quick. There's actually nothing even all that dramatic about it except for the result. All he did was look up and speak a stern, authoritative word, and everything fell quiet around him. Small wonder the disciples are stunned at this. All of that which threatened to overwhelm them, all of that which looked like it would destroy them, all of that which seemed on the cusp of overcoming them, simply falls quiet because of the presence of the one who is sleeping on the cushion. Jesus, just as he is. 
Jesus just as he is. More than sufficient. And so note, he doesn't even exactly give the disciples what they're looking for or what they're asking for because they had no expectation that he could do that. Because what happens here and what Jesus shows is not just the ability to work a miracle. This is greater than that. The great chaotic force in the language of sacred scripture is often described as the ocean, the sea, water, which is not understood as this unambiguously good and life-giving reality, but as something dangerous, unruly, and threatening, that which cannot be mastered or controlled, which again, if we're honest, sounds like several aspects of our lives. That which is bigger than we are, out of our control, it is unruly, stormy, chaotic. At times it falls quiet only to suddenly rise up and threaten us again. Who can understand the storminess of water? Who can control it? And in the language of scripture, there is only one who can do that. The one who sets his throne upon the waters and says, thus far shall you move and no further. And that is God. Note the question of the disciples. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey? Because the wind and the sea only obey one person. Only divine power masters them. Only divine power is invincible against the chaos of the world. And the one who was just sleeping on the cushion, wakes up and speaks with divine authority, and the water falls silent. How remarkable that is. But note, the key to receiving this moment of revelation is to allow Jesus to be with us as he is, including asleep on the cushion. So that when the moment that he wakes up arrives, we have a chance of seeing more clearly who in fact he really is. And we see that the storm was at the service of the Lord showing his power. The, Lord was, the storm was at the service of the Lord revealing himself in his fullness to his church, to his people. And it was at the service of the Lord showing them it doesn't matter if it seems to you like I'm asleep or awake. What matters is that I'm with you. Because if I am with you, mighty and frightening as the storm may be, there is greater than the storm with you. Asleep or awake, if I am with you, you are safe. What a remarkable moment this, in fact, is. And how wonderful that we can reflect on it here. We who are sinners, we are, who are so easily shaken up, so easily overcome, whether it's by the storms of our passion, as was the case with King David, whether it's by the simple fact that life around us seems so overwhelming, but here we are. And in just a few minutes, 
He's going to come down off of this altar to us. We're going to stretch out our hands to receive him. But let us receive him as St. Mark shows us in our gospel today. Because what does he say? They took him into their boat just as he was. Let's not receive Jesus as how we want him to be. Let's receive him for who he is and how he is and how he chooses to be with us. Because that is the first and most essential step in the spiritual life. Amen.